Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We do ask for your spirit to enlighten us, transform us, renew us to be like you. Make us powerful witnesses for your kingdom so that your return will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And then a couple of announcements. This is the magazine they're going to be handing out at JFest today. And in the back of the magazine, at the very end, there is an advertisement for the Journal of the Watcher which is not quite available yet, but we'll probably have it available within four to six weeks. And you can go to the thejournalthewatcher.com to get a little bit more information about it. But the Journal of the Watcher is a new e-book that's coming out. And it's going to, it's an illustrated e-book. Every page will have an illustration. And it's um, based on the, the Daniel chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar in his dream saw a holy one and a watcher come down from heaven. And it's the perspective of the great controversy over God's character told to the page of history from the perspective of the heavenly watchers watching what's happening. And so rather than just recounting the Bible stories as they've always been told, it's much more like the first chapter of the book of Job, where you get the behind the scene battle that's going on over the events on planet Earth. And uh, I wrote the text, I'm the author of the text, Lewis Johnson did all the illustrations. He's an illustrator from Australia. And then um, Kevin Barbary did the, uh, the voice because you can read it yourself or you can play it because there'll be an audio track that will actually read it to you with a musical score with it as well. So it's going to be kind of a lively interactive ebook um, that'll hopefully be available very soon. But I'll pass it around. Y'all can look at that advertisement that's going to be there at JFest today. So... Alrighty, and then I got a couple of emails since last time. Here's a couple of emails. Um, I hope all is well with you. I continue to enjoy and share resources from Come and Reason whenever I can, either by giving away the books to friends or creating my own presentation for Sabbath School here where I live now in North Carolina, and also in my previous church's Teen Vacation Bible School program in Florida. I've only received positive responses to all the presentations. This message is so liberating and transformational, I truly pray it will span the globe. This is the true gospel and the third angel's message. What's even more awesome, the more I study the Bible and the testimonies, the more evidence I find to reinforce what you are teaching. Not to mention in nature, and uh, not to mention in nature and my own experience. See, integrative evidence-based approach, taking hold. Isn't that good? Yeah. So I'm truly thankful that I see clearly now without the traditional distortions. May God continue to bless you and the Come and Reason family. I love you all. And then the second email, um, I have been introducing your DVDs at church and using your Bible study outlines, shared them with other instructors, and now out of, uh, now out of our lesson study, three out of the four instructors, the, basically the Bible study teachers each week, are using your outline materials. Isn't that cool? See, a lot of people using our stuff. We initially got resistance, but with this inductive approach, members are beginning to see a picture of God that is, a, that is friendly. Uh, would it be possible to have additional DVDs, as I now have given out my last one to one of my patients? I would pre- prefer all three seminars. A case would be nice. Thank you for your ministry. So freeing from California. All right, we're starting a new quarterly today, and I know you guys are shocked that I'm here to start the new quarterly. <laughs> But I am. And the new quarterly is The Teachings of Jesus. And the lesson uh, title for the first lesson is Our Loving Heavenly Father. How many of you actually had a chance to look ahead and, and read this lesson for this week? Because I know many of you just got it today. Well, I was encouraged as I read this lesson. Uh, Russell mentioned last week that he had noticed a trend in the study guides of moving more towards a true picture of God's character of love. And in this week's lesson, I really noticed that as well. In fact, I think it's probably the best lesson I've read in 10 years in our quarterly. It's quite, quite well done. We'll see a lot of positive things today. So look at Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. Father was not a new name for God. The Old Testament sometimes presented him as our father. However, it was not the most used name for him. For Israel, the personal name of God was Yahweh, which appears more than 6,800 times in the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to reveal a different God from Yahweh. Rather, his mission was to complete the revelation that God had made of himself in the Old Testament. In doing so, he presented God as our Heavenly Father. See, isn't that well said? It's right on. That's exactly right. So, as I looked at that, as you think about God in the Old Testament and then Jesus in the New Testament revealing God, who was the member of the Godhead who was interacting with humankind in the Old Testament? The Father, Son, or Holy Spirit primarily. Which member was the one interacting in the Old Testament? It was Jesus. So when you look in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. When you look in the New Testament, that's Jesus. They're both Jesus. But instead of just claiming that, what evidence do you have to support that conclusion, that that's Jesus in the Old Testament? See, we, we should be able to back that kind of stuff up, right? 
John 1.1. 1, 1. John 1.1 1, 1 is a good one. Um, that's a really good one. Ah, that's a good one. I've got that one in here. John 8, 58 and 59. Jesus speaking, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. So Jesus is making the claim right there that, 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 that he was the God of the Old Testament. How about uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4? Paul says the following, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the facts, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Pretty straightforward and clear which member of the Godhead was leading them, and that was Jesus, according to Paul. I like this one too, though, Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 4. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the, far, uh, to the far side of the desert and came to the Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of the fire and from within the bush. Moses saw the bush was on fire but did not burn up, so he thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Notice, the angel of the Lord appeared in the flames of the fire. God called to him from the bush. So the question is, which member of the Godhead would manifest himself as the angel of the Lord? Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Well, if you're confused, there's a couple other texts you can bring in. It's like putting puzzle pieces together. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will come... The Lord himself, who's that speaking of? The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Whose voice, the voice of the archangel, whose voice is it that calls the dead back to life? Jesus. Jesus. So we have a connection. We put the pieces together. Okay, the angel of the Lord, which is God, who's the voice of the archangel who calls the dead in life. And if you want another text to kind of add to that, Revelation 1, 17 and 18, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. So which member of the God had died and rose again? So you put the pieces together, it becomes pretty clear that the member of the Godhead in the Old Testament interacting with man was Jesus, which is the same member of the Godhead who became incarnate and died and then rose again. Do you, do you see the same picture of God in the Old Testament as the New? I do now. Have you always? No. And so, is it profound for you? Is it profound when that idea popped into your mind? Wait a minute. The Old Testament God is Jesus. I mean, just before you started, just that idea, was that kind of like, whoa, I've got to do some rethinking. The Old Testament God is Jesus. Why is there such difficulty for some people in seeing the God of the Old Testament as Jesus revealed him to be when Jesus was on earth? Why is it so difficult for people? Because of the way it is expressed through human people that their viewpoints are... Look at Moses saying, God is angry and wants to destroy the people. And I was afraid of God's anger, but I would have saved you. So, so she's saying the way it was expressed in the Old Testament sounds a lot different than the New, doesn't it? Well, you have to get yourself really into understanding the circumstances. I like what she's saying there. Yes, you have to really get into the circumstances. But look at Sodom and Gomorrah, look at the flood, look at all this. He would seem like a destructive God, an angry God in the Old Testament, but a loving God in the New Testament. Yes, Russell, you had a hand up. Well, in, in discovering all this, we, we often don't like to admit we were wrong. Ah. We don't like to admit we were wrong, not only in our own thinking, but in our sharing. I've shared with people the angry God concept. And, and to go back and rethink that, I, I've, I've presented an error. I've, 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 I may have led someone down a completely uh, a wrong path. And how about if you preach sermons that way? And how about if you preach sermons that way, wrote articles that way, wrote textbooks that way, taught students that way, built your reputation in teaching that? It becomes much harder, doesn't it? That's right. This was, this, this was the, the, the religious leaders in Christ's day. They, their whole reputation was built on teaching the people this perspective. It was very hard for them to back up. Nicodemus was, and, and Joseph Arimathea, good-hearted people, still struggled to back up. Yeah. Paul. Yeah. Paul had to be confronted. And then three years out in the desert to get his thinking straight. 
Even after he was converted, his thinking was so deeply entrenched in the old way, he had to spend three and a half years with, with God alone in the desert to get his thinking straight. And that temptation is so powerful. That, that's how, you know, the divine inspiration tells us that's how Satan uh, convinced the angels who, were, who came to their controversy and said, wait, what are we doing? And he said, no, you've gone too far now. You, you can't turn back. Yes, here. Even as, even as long as, as um, we have known this, you know, this wonderful truth that, that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, even now when you're having conversations with people, you, I even still hear myself slip and go, okay, no, that's not what I, you know, that's not what I meant. And, you know, and it, it's just so ingrained in us after going to our schools, unfortunately, my entire life. That's the mess. That's the picture of God that I've been raised on, and you know. And I even now I have to consciously, when I'm speaking, say it the right way to not to give the wrong impression of who God is. So uh, that well said. I, I've, I've struggled with that myself. Let's see if we can't uh, specify why some of these differences are in the old and the new. Um, one, I think the the New Testament's easier to understand because Jesus gave his own testimony. First-hand testimony out of the mouth of Jesus himself and his stories and illustrations and the way he lived his life. It's, it's easier to get it firsthand than to have uh, somebody else. And, of course, it is recorded by others, but they're recording directly what they're observing themselves. And so you're getting a, a, a cleaner, if you will, revelation in the life of Jesus than, say, some of the actions going on in the Old Testament. Secondly, though, what was said over here about understanding the context the condition of the people was different in the Old Testament than in Jesus' time. P- particularly, in the Old Testament times, they were constantly thinking that other gods were better, more desirable, generally more powerful than the Creator God. They were actually being seduced into believing some of these are ideas that maybe other gods were equally good or better even than, the, than Yahweh. Thus, God had to repeatedly demonstrate to them over and over again the impotence of the false gods. That's why you see the ten plagues of Egypt. All of them were designed to reveal the impotence of the Egyptian gods. You see the three and a half year drought followed by the confrontation at Carmel. Why? Confrontation over Baal. Baal is a false god. Um, the confrontation with Dagon. If you remember when the ark was captured and Dagon falls down, then his hands are broken. And the con- Again, and the hemorrhoids that the people got when, when, they, when they were... This is, this is what, what happened, uh, uh, showing that their gods were powerless. The, the prophets repeatedly threatening that God would abandon them and they would reap destruction. This is how it was always phrased. Um, the 70-year captivity. What was that about? Again, you don't want to have, you want to go to these other gods and I'll let you have those other gods. And what happens? Boom. I'm not here to protect you anymore. Shriveling of the king's hand. If you remember the story. Um, the she bears. Um, all of these stories of the Old Testament are again, over and over and over again, demonstrating the weakness and the impotence of the gods. Uh, of the false gods. And this is why God also spoke to them so harshly at times as well. God actually took credit for things he permitted simply so they would think that he is God and not think that some other powerful being was equally you know, worthy of their adoration or, or, or uh, affections. This is why you get some of the messages like when Micaiah comes to Ahab. Ahab is uh, meeting with uh, Jehoshaphat, asking the Jehoshaphat, Ahab king of Israel, Jehoshaphat king of Judah, and asking the Jehoshaphat would join forces to go to war with Ramoth Gilead. And uh, Jehoshaphat asked for a, uh, a prophet from the Lord. And uh, Ahab says, I hate the prophets of the Lord. They always speak bad things against me. And uh, he has this 400 prophets of his own, of Baal, that are all telling him to go for it. So, but, but Jehoshaphat insists. They call Micaiah. This is not Micah. This is Micaiah. And Micaiah comes in. First thing he says is, hey, go ahead. You'll be successful. Go. And Ahab says, how many times do I have to tell you? Don't joke with me. Tell me the truth. <laughs> and so then Micaiah tells him a story. Well, God called a meeting of, of, uh, in heaven and asked the spirits in heaven, asked the angels in heaven, um, how can we seduce Ahab into his death by going to war with, with Ramoth Gilead? And one suggested this, and one suggested that. Finally, one said, I know, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And the Lord said, go and do it. It's right there in Second Kings, just like that. Do we believe God sends his angels to be lying spirits in the mouth of false prophets? No. But that's exactly what the prophet said. 
to Ahab. Why? Think about Ahab's mindset. What kind of God does Ahab worship? He worships a dictator-control God. You have to speak language. Why would a parent tell a, a, parent tell a two-year-old or three-year-old to brush their teeth and why? Okay? He is telling, if you look at the message, the message is saying, if you follow those prophets, those prophets are lying and you're going to go to your death. So it's actually a message of redemption to protect him from going down a destructive trail. But God is taking ownership over it because Ahab doesn't believe in the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He believes in a God who's powerful. And so if, if, if they're lying, then God must have put that there because God is a super sovereign being and nothing happens without God's will and purpose, you see. So God must be the one causing it. So he had to speak in a language that Ahab could understand. But when Jesus came, they had given up. If you remember, at the time Jesus came, they had given up the belief in these false gods. They weren't going after all these false deities of the nations around them anymore. Jesus didn't come, and you don't find anywhere that I can find in the the gospel record, that Jesus was urging them to stop worshiping Dagon or Molech or Baal or any of these things. They weren't doing that anymore. They were apparently following the script. So they benefited in some degree from their faithfulness, even though it was limited. What was the benefit that they got? Because they were able, Jesus was then able to reveal himself differently. Yeah, he was able to come and, and, and reveal that the view they had. Now, while they weren't going after false gods by name, they weren't worshiping Molech, they weren't worshiping Baal, they still, though, incorporated a false god concept in how they viewed Yahweh. So they were still worshiping a false god, but now under the right name. So they weren't going after all these other false deities. They're thinking they worship Yahweh, but they think Yahweh is a dictator. He's punitive. We should stone this woman caught in adultery. That's what Yahweh would do. Um, he's hard-hearted. He's unforgiving. And so Christ came to throw off these distortions. The Sabbath should never be used for healing. You should be stoned for healing people on Sabbath. And so they had this very distorted view of God, but at least they were now focused in on, on him so they could actually now focus on clearing up his character. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Second paragraph, it says, Jesus made clear that the Father is in heaven. It is important to remember this truth in order that we might have a right attitude towards God. We have a loving Father who is concerned with the needs of his children. At the same time, we recognize that this caring Father is in heaven, where millions of angels worship him because he is the only sovereign of the universe, holy and omnipotent. The fact that he is our Father invites us to approach him with the confidence of a child. On the other hand, the truth that he is in heaven reminds us of his transcendence and the need to worship him with reverence. To emphasize one of these aspects at the expense of the other would lead us to distort a concept of God with far-reaching consequences for practical daily life, for our practical daily lives. First, I want to say something because an idea popped into my mind this week. There's a philosophy out there called naturalism that's making its way into Christianity. And, and naturalism is that God has made laws of nature. We kind of talk about that. And therefore, God made the laws of nature and then he left it to run on its own. And everything now is a natural consequence, is a natural explanation. Now, while we believe in, uh, we believe, though, in a very personal God, that God is involved personally in our lives and he intervenes personally, we also believe, though, that he did make the laws of nature. And, and so we don't believe he wound it up and let it go and then steps back and just lets everything take a natural consequence. We believe that God created the laws of nature and is intimately involved in, in, in interacting with us in our lives, but in harmony with his design. He doesn't deviate from his own character or nature or violate his own design protocols. So it's not naturalism we teach, and I just want to say that. We teach a very personal God who's personally involved, but he operates in harmony with his own nature, character, and design. Um, why do millions of angels, it said in here that he's in heaven, where millions of angels worship him? And then it talks about because he's the only sovereign, holy, and omnipotent. Why do you think millions of angels worship him? It's absolutely true that God is sovereign and all-powerful. Let's be clear about that. He's sovereign, he's all-powerful. But are these the primary reasons God is to be worshipped? Any thoughts about that? He's yeah. a God of love. God of love. And, and, and you say that, that's true. How does that connect with his idea of worship? 
It's a response. They also are beings of love. And so they have a connection and they are serving others in their worship. And also he's their creator, just like he's our creator. I mean, we worship him out of respect for who he is, for what he has done for us. You know, and he has, he's the one that has put the love in our heart for him. And he did the same for the angels. Yep, yep. Here, comment. Yep. God draws with his character. Oh. So, so did Satan ever allege in heaven that God was powerless? No. No. Or that he had more power than God? No. Over here's a hand. Yeah. Uh, the word worship, I think, is based on the word worth. Worth? He's worthy to be worshipped because he can be trusted. Oh, I like where this is going too. So it, again, Satan's allegations weren't that that God didn't have power, but it had to do something with his trustworthiness. Yes. It's also part of the law that he created uh, life to operate in. There's a law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. Correct. Mm. And created beings, if they worship anything other than other than the creator and the correct creator concept, then they're, they're going to be degraded. Well said. Well said. This is from the book, Could It Be the Simple? It says, Many people conceive of God's glory as the great displays of might, power, and fire. But the Bible teaches that God's greatest glory reveals itself in his character. Because we are finite beings, many humans frequently react to fear to our all-powerful God. Unfortunately, this fear often leads to rebellion. Once Satan had made his allegations, God could not win his case through the display of might and power, which would inevitably result in submission based on terror. God will never utilize coercive tactics because they are contrary to his benevolent character. The use of might and power to pressure conformity violates the law of liberty and would result in further rebellion. Such methods belong to Satan. If God employed them, he would ultimately lose his case. Although he has immense power, it is not the source of his glory because power alone would intimidate, leading us to fear him and subsequently destroy our love for him. 19th century theologian George MacDonald made the same point. What is the deepest in God? His power? No, for power would not make him what we mean when we say God. A being whose essence was only power would be such a negation of the divine that no righteous worship could be offered him. His service must be fear and fear only. The power isn't what is most important. Instead, it is the trustworthiness of the one who possesses all the power. It is the demonstration of his character, the character of the one who holds the power that is the real source of divine glory. For example, although God is all-powerful, he can never be provoked, even in the most abusive and horrendous circumstances, to use his power for self-interest. When humanity fully recognizes it, this, it will restore trust and regenerate love and we will then open our hearts and minds to him for healing and restoration. The Bible is clear on this issue. The book of Haggai declares that the glory of the second temple would be greater than Solomon's temple. The prophecy refers to the structure the Jews built after returning from Babylonian captivity. But in the book Ezra, we read that the older Levites and family heads, when they saw the second temple, mourned because it was so small when compared to Solomon's. If the second temple was smaller than the first, how could it be more glorious? Most Bible students immediately explain that Because Jesus walked in the courts of the second temple, his presence made it more glorious. But in 2 Chronicles, we read that when Solomon's temple was dedicated, the priests could not enter because the brightness of God's glory was too great. In other words, God came to both temples, one in unveiled splendor, the other in human form. Yet Haggai states the second was more glorious. Why? Because it was at the second temple that Christ revealed the character of God because it was at the second temple that Christ showed what he preferred, that he preferred to permit his creatures to abuse him rather than use his power in selfish ways. At the second temple, Christ demonstrated that we can trust the one who has the power. Yes. Uh, and to submit evidence on that, Yes. I'd like to say Luke 1, Zechariah's song. This is when John the Baptist was born. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come and has redeemed his people. He has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us, to show us mercy 
to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And how is it that we are able to serve him without fear? By recognizing the truth of his character. Isn't that right? Yeah. So why do we worship God? Because of who he is in character. Not merely because of his abilities, but I want to say we are so thankful that he has all those abilities. <laughs> for if he, were, if, if he were the same in character but had no power, it wouldn't really be so good for us. Would it? Same in character but no power, that's not really good for us. But if he were all-powerful but like Satan in character, worse for us. So yes, we're thankful he has all the power, but we're even more thankful for the character of the one who wields the power. What about the idea that the fact that he is our father invites us to approach him with the confidence of a child? What ideas come to your mind with this description? Approaching the father with the confidence of a child. Yes? This last night, um, our family got together, and... um, we have two little ones in, in our family, and one I think he's I think he's three, and just the way that they run straight into their parent, almost knocking them over, you know, just and just going and just hugging their legs or, or getting right up in their face and rubbing noses or nuzzling. I can't wait to be able to do that with God, um, and I think that obviously, you know, we we come before God with you know, Christ's righteousness because he has given it to us, but but that's who our God is. That's who God the Father is. And that's who we get to spend eternity with. And I'm I'm just and so many people and of course, I mean, Christ's, you know, death for us is just amazing. But so many people are like, Well when we, when we get there, you know, we'll find Jesus and you know, he'll take us to the Father and and you know, introduce us and we'll be okay and everything will be all right. You know, he won't burn us up because Jesus will be with us, you know. And, and I'm just like, yeah, but I can't, I just want to run to his arms and just, you Good know, for you. He, wants to, he wants to share his throne with us. You know, he tells us, sit on his throne. And um, I'm just real excited about that. Yesterday, uh, my granddaughter, Lennox, who is turning two in a couple of weeks, was at our house and at the pool. And, uh, and she has this little floaty on where she can uh, swim. And she'll swim with her little floaty at, at under, under two yet. And um, she was there on the stair, and I was out in the pool, and, I, and there was a little boat that she likes to get in. And I was encouraging her, she, and she wanted the boat. She was telling me to bring it to her, but I was telling her to swim to it. And she was looking. I was about this far, and she wouldn't push off to go to the boat. But then I said to her, come here, come to me. She pushed off and came to me. But she wouldn't go to the boat. She came to me. Okay? Why? What's the difference? Exactly. She had that trust. She had that sense that it'll be okay to come to me, but not to the boat, even though she'd been in the boat and floated on the boat and wanted it. So I think that's kind of an idea that, hey, do you trust him that, that you'll push off and go to him when he calls you? Well, you think about this father-child type relationship. Does it? Go, go ahead. Yes. That implies a healthy relationship, and so often we see around us unhealthy relationships in which the children are terrified of who they are with. That's, so does it depend on the child, how the child conceives of the view of the father? Yeah. <laughs> For her perfect comment. If, if a child views the father as a judge, a dictator, an enforcer of the rules, will they then want to go to their, fa- will they go to their father in confidence, especially if they, they, they just made a mistake and did something wrong? Well, they still want to... I got to tell you, when I was a kid... There were times when I, I did some things I wasn't supposed to do. Yeah, I know. It's hard to believe, isn't it? And, uh, and my mom would say, you wait till your father gets home. <laughs> and I dreaded him coming home all day long. It was like he was coming home, and I knew the, I would have to go cut a willow switch. <laughs> yeah, anybody else had the willow switch treatment? Okay, yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what enables us to come confidently before God? Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold firm to the faith we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. 
And also, we see demonstrations in the Bible of how Jesus treated those. You know? So, yes. Notice, though, this, this text can be interp- understood two different ways. One is very healthy. One actually is not so healthy. Mm-hmm. See, we have one who has been tempted in every way just like we are so we can have confidence. And I've heard this presented many times. Because Jesus, was, because Jesus was tempted, he now knows our plight, the suffering, how hard it is on us. And he can tell his dad, dad, don't you realize how hard it is? Because, and he's up there to let his dad know how difficult it is on us. Because obviously there's something the father would know if Jesus wasn't telling him. You see, he's not really quite all-knowing. This is the implication that's presented. No, this wasn't for God's information or knowledge or experience. This is so that we know. Remember who the allegations were against? The war is over the character of God. We doubted his goodness. We doubted that he would suffer with us. We doubted he really knows how hard it is on us. Think about this. Have you ever been in a hardship where you've maybe lost something important? You got terminated from job, lost a loved one. And somebody who maybe, maybe uh, and I've had this with, with parents that I, that I counseled, lost a child, child died. And somebody says, I know exactly how you feel. You believe it? How about if you know they also lost a child? Then do you believe it? Notice. Now, God, do you think God needed this experience for him to actually know what we go through? I don't think he did. I think he really did know. But I think we needed him to go through it so we would really believe he knows. Because we wouldn't believe it. Yeah, right. You hadn't been down here. You don't know what it's like. Now we know. So this was for our need as well that we, we can have confidence. So it gives us confidence knowing that Jesus is in heaven and we now know God does know and he sympathizes with us. Here's a description. Oh, what is it though that undermines the confidence? What is it that undercuts our ability to have this confidence that God empathizes and sympathizes with us? Well, here's a description written over 100 years ago and you can find it in a magazine article called Signs of the Times, January 20, 1898. 1898. In Christ dwelt the fullness of the Godhead. How much of the Godhead? Is that a scripture? Is a scripture text that supports that? God was in the Son reconciling to the world to himself? There's other texts too, but that's one. Uh, in Christ, all the fullness of the God had dwelt. Um, but the only way in which he could reach men was to veil his glory by a garb of humanity. The angels beheld the hiding of his glory, that divinity might touch humanity. Christ ever retained the utmost hatred for sin. But he, you know, why does he hate sin? It destroys. Why do doctors hate disease? It destroys. Okay. Upmost hatred for sin. But he loved the purchase of his blood. He suffered in the place of sinful men, taking them into union with himself. This is the mystery into which angels desire to look. They desire to know how Christ could live and work in a fallen world, how he could mingle with sinful humanity. It was a mystery to them that he who hated sin with intense hatred felt the most tender, compassionate sympathy for the beings that committed sin. Satan had worked long to efface the true impression of God and to represent him as a God having no love. This is Satan's character. He is destitute of mercy and compassion, overbearing and revengeful. He delights in the misery that he brings on the human family. With these attributes, he attempts to clothe the God of heaven. Christ came to remove these unjust impressions. He came to assure men that they need not fear to approach God because of his greatness and ma- need not to fear approach him because of his greatness and ma- majesty. He constantly sought to carry the attention of his hearers to God. He presented the greatness of the Father's love, declaring that he had so great a care for his children that even the hairs of their heads are numbered. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without the notice of the Heavenly Father. He sympathizes with all the creatures he has made. And if the heart is given into his hands and attuned to his power, it will respond by strains of melody and thanksgiving. In his wisdom, the Savior teaches us to approach God with the confidence of a child. He instructs us to call Jehovah by the endearing name of Father, that we may not separate from him in awe and coldness. Notice, we won't separate in, in awe. And, and, yeah. Constantly, he points us to the emblem of fatherly love, seeking to encourage faith and confidence in God. He pleads with us, you know, to have Jesus in heaven pleading. You know, we have the, Jesus who's before the Father pleading his blood. Yes, to us, not to the Father. See? Uh, he pleads with us to have a correct idea of the Father. 
He throws back the accusations of the enemy, declaring, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. He would have the memorials of redeeming grace arrest our attention that we may know that all the goodness, mercy, patience, forbearance seen in him belong to God. Isn't that profound? You see the issue again. It's back to character. And people doubt approaching God as a father that's tender because they've incorporated to some degree some distortion of Satan's character and hold it to God. And they call it maybe justice? Yes. It's one of the reasons I think a good parent is a, is a good example of a God-like relationship to a child because they created the child, they're responsible for the child, they train the child, they discipline the child, they love the child in a way they're responsible for them, but they're also a servant of that child because without the parent doing everything for them, cleaning their backsides and feeding them and stuff, they would die. So I just wanted to say that an example of that is in John at the Last Supper. We often read about the Last Supper, but we forget the sentence before that. Um, in John 13, Jesus, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So... He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And in Luke, it says, um, in Luke 22, 27, it says, but I am among you as one who serves. And I don't think we recognize so much the servanthood of God. No, absolutely. When we understand the law of love, as we teach in this class, that's exactly. God is always giving of himself. He's outward-centered. Energy is constantly flowing from him for the sustenance of his creation and their health and welfare. Absolutely. Yes? For those of us who have had loving fathers, this is not a hard concept. But for those who have not had loving fathers... Yes, we're getting there. Okay. Yeah, it's coming. Difficult. Yes, it's coming. Difficult. It's absolutely very difficult. Right. It's in the lesson, and, and it's coming. Um, but you mentioned, I wanted to, something Linda said in passing, I don't know if she under, said it, but responsibility of parents are in their conduct in parenting, not for the outcome of their children's lives. Even when parenting is perfect without flaw, as in God parenting Adam and Eve and God parenting Lucifer, it didn't guarantee good outcomes. When you live in a, in a universe in which there is genuine freedom of, of choice and conscience, you cannot guarantee the outcome of your children's life by your decisions. But you are responsible for your decisions and how you conduct yourself as parent to provide the most, most beneficial environment and influences for them. But at the end of the day, everyone chooses their own destiny. And think about your own choices in life growing up when you made deviations from ways maybe that you knew weren't best for you, whether that came from your parents or just the Holy Spirit convicting your heart. There were times we've all made those choices and we knew we were wrong when we did it. Parents are not responsible for that. So I don't want to put this false burden on parents that somehow they're responsible for how their kids turn out because they're not. But they are responsible for their conduct and parenting. All right. Um, <clears throat> so coming to God as a child, does that mean that we come with childish thinking? Paul said, when I was a child, I thought like a child, acted like a child, but now that I'm an adult, I put away childish things. So are we to be childish when we come to God. No, it means, what I understand it means is that we come to him in love and trust and confidence as a child, but not with magical and unintelligent thinking. He wants us to have mature thinking with the trust and confidence of a child. Last two paragraphs in the lesson uh, for Sunday, it says, not everyone who has a loving father, a loving, not everyone has had a loving, caring father. For various reasons, some may not even have known their father. Therefore, for them to call God my father may have little, if any, meaning. However, all of us have an idea of what a good earthly father would be. Besides, we may have known some people who did portray the characteristics of a good father. We know that human fathers are far from perfect, but we also know that most fathers love their their children, and in spite of their shortcomings, they try to give them the best they can. Imagine then what our Father in Heaven can do for us. So this is the idea that you were mentioning. The lesson points out that for some children, they have abusive fathers, and it might be hard for them to appreciate God as a Heavenly Father. I would like to actually modify that a little bit and say, do you think the type of father a person is 
is impacted by the view of God that person holds. What happens when a father or fathers have dictator views of God? Could this be a source of mistreatment of their children? In fact, studies do show that the more authoritarian God concepts people have, the more likely they are to abuse their own families and their own children. There's a direct relationship between religiosity and authoritarian God concepts and child abuse. There's an inverse relationship between spirituality and loving God concepts and protecting your children and not abusing them. So it's, it's direct. But May 27, 2014, maybe some of you have heard this news article. A woman was stoned to death by her family in front of the Pakistani High Court on Tuesday for marrying a man she loved, police and defense lawyers said. Nearly 20 members of the woman's family, including her father and brothers, attacked her and her husband with batons and bricks in broad daylight before a crowd of onlookers in front of the High Court in Lahore, uh, said, police, uh, said police officer Nassim Butt. He said that uh, Farzana Paveen, 25, had married Muhammad Iqbal, uh, with whom she had been engaged for years in opposition to her family. Avenged marriages are the norm among conservative Pakistanis who view marriage for love as a transgression. But, the police official uh, said, uh, Parveen's father surrendered after the incident and called the murder an honor killing. The Human Rights Commission of Pakistan, a private organization, said in, in a report... Last month, that some 869 women were murdered in so-called honor killings in 2013. The the references in the the notes for those who want it. What type of heavenly father do you think this father worshipped and believed in? I, I personally find it unlikely that this family did this thinking they were sinning against God. I think they were acting on beliefs that were harmony with the construct that they believe God operates on. Monday's lesson, second paragraph says, um, In the great controversy, Satan's main attack has been against the character of God. The devil makes every effort to convince everyone that God is selfish, severe, and arbitrary. The best way to meet this accusation was for him to live on this earth in order to demonstrate the falsehood of the charges. Jesus came to represent God's nature and character and to correct the distort, distorted concept that many have developed about the Godhead. The only, this only son who is the bosom of the Father has made him known. Again, another well-stated statement. I mean, the quarterly, really, this this lesson is really great. Um, Are any other attacks that Satan makes besides attacking God's character? That is, I agree, the main thrust. Yes. He's the accuser of the brother. He attacks us. Yes, he does. He accuses us. That's right. And he attacks the creation. Even nature groans under the weight of his attack. Yes, and I think he does it for dual purposes. One, he attacks us to, to misrepresent God. We were made in whose image? To represent who? God. So he attacks us to misrepresent. And I think he attacks us to hurt us because God loves us. And he knows in hurting us, he hurts God. It's a way to get at God. Very vindictive. What is the importance to us in understanding that the devil's attack is against God's character? It will help you with your theology. It will help you with your theology because then you can understand Christ's mission was not a legal battle in a courtroom. It also wasn't a power battle where he was powerfully fighting to wrestle control away from Satan in a field, in an arena with physical might and power. The battlefield, according to Scripture, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, and other places, is the battle of your mind. We war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. And so he's warring in the minds and hearts of people for who you believe and what you believe and who you will trust. The battlefield is always in the intelligent being. That's where it's it's, it's fought. And and the weapons we use have divine power to demolish strongholds. Can anybody throw out a couple of those weapons? Truth Truth demolishes what? Satan is the father of? Lies. So there's a divine weapon to demolish lies. What another one? Faith. Faith or trust demolishes doubt. Doubt is built upon lies. And so truth is a foundation for establishing faith. Okay? How about love? Love demolishes selfishness. Freedom demolishes coercion. So so there's weapons we have to wield. All right, Tuesday's lesson. I'm going to kind of move on. Um, The uh, Three paragraphs in the middle, it says... 
Christ was another great statement. Christ was not nailed to the cross in order to create in the Father's heart a love for humanity. Jesus' atoning death was not the means to convince the Father to love us. It happened because the Father had already loved us even before the foundation of the world. And what greater evidence do we have, could we have, of his love than the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? The Father loves us not because of the great propitiation, but he provided the propitiation because he loves us. Some tend to think that the Father is reluctant to love us. Nevertheless, the fact that Jesus is our mediator does not mean that he has to persuade the Father to love us. Christ himself dispelled this wrong idea when he said, the Father himself loves you. This is well said. Very well said. So then, let's, let's ask a couple questions. What does propitiation mean? He provided the propitiation. The Father loves us not because of the great propitiation, but he provided the propitiation because he loves us. This word often means, it's often presented to mean... Yes, that's what it's often presented to mean, but this clearly says that's not what it's for. So what is propitiation? The sacrifice of atonement. The sacrifice of atonement is the, is the um, NIV version of this passage in King James. This is the King James, Romans 3, 21 through 26. When you hear the word propitiation, the NIV uses the language sacrifice of atonement. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. I love King James English. Don't you? That just makes such perfect sense as we read this. But I'm going to keep going. For we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Did that make just perfect sense, everyone? Yes. Boy, I can see how that verse could go both ways. Mm-hmm. Yes. Propitiating God or propitiating us? My other thought is that as a means of reconciliation. Means of reconciliation. Oh, I like this. Yes. So, you know, the cilia, you know, the root word. Yes. You know, yes. Was that good speed? The word translated propitiation or sacrifice of atonement is the Greek word hilasterion. And the hilasterion is the Greek word for the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. It's actually a noun. It's the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And what took place at the lid of the Ark of the Covenant? Reconciliation, unity. Uh, if you remember the Ark, the box, remember what the box represents? The box was made out of acacia wood. Acacia wood is a porous wood with holes in it, but it was perfectly covered with gold, so the gold filled in all the holes. Gold is symbolic of Christ's perfection. Acacia wood, the box itself, is, is the sinful human being who's now partaken of Christ and been renewed and filled with the righteousness of Christ. Okay? And in the box went three things. What three things went in the box? The law, Aaron's rod. The law, Aaron's rod, and? Manna. Manna. What order did they go in? What went in first? Manna. They got manna in Exodus chapter 16. Law came in Exodus chapter 20, and then later came the rod that budded. There's some symbolism here. What's the manna represent? I'm the bread of life. Jesus, I am the bread of heaven that has come down from heaven. So it represents this. You partake of the bread of life first in your heart. You partake of Jesus. You're one back to trust and you open the heart. And then when you open the heart because you partake in Jesus, he writes the law, the new covenant experience on the heart and mind. You've been renewed in righteousness and you which were dead in your trespasses and sins begin bringing about the peaceable fruits of righteousness in your life, Aaron's rod that buds. Okay? This is what the symbolisms are trying to show. This is the sinner covered and renewed in righteousness to be Christ-like, touching the ark. The angels on top represent the heavenly host who have never fallen, touching the ark. The Shekinah glory represents the Father touching the, the lid to the ark. And notice, everything touches the lid, which is all things come together under one head, even Jesus Christ. Christ is the uniting link, which links this fallen world back to the perfection of heaven above. Which is made of solid gold. Which is made of solid gold. That's right. The lid was solid gold. Very thin because it would be heavy, but it was still solid gold. This is what the hilasterion is, the place in which, in the means whereby, things are reconciled back into perfection. So here's my paraphrase of Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now God has revealed a healthy state of being, a character that is right and perfect in every way, that did not come from the written code, but is exactly what Scripture and the Ten Commandments were pointing your minds toward. 
This perfect state of being comes from Christ and is created within us by God when we trust him. Our trust in him is established by the evidence given through Jesus Christ of his supreme trustworthiness. There is no difference among any ethnic groups for all humanity is infected with the same disease of distrust, fear, and selfishness and are deformed in character and fall far short of God's glorious ideal for mankind. Yet all who are willing are healed freely by God's gracious remedy that he has provided, that has been provided by Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration. Hilasterion, the way and means of restoration. Now, through trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died, we may partake of the remedy procured by Christ. God did this to demonstrate that he is right and good, because in his forbearance he suspended for a time the ultimate consequence of being out of harmony with how he designed life to exist, and has been falsely accused of being unfair. So he did it to demonstrate how right and good he is at the present time, so that he would be, so that he, so that he would be seen as being right when he heals those who trust in Jesus. Is that easier to understand? For me, it is. I, don't know. I wrote it, so maybe that's why. <laughs> Propitiation, though, means the place and means of reconciliation. What do we do then with this word mediation? Mediation was also used in the lesson. The mediator. What do you understand mediation to be? Uh, mediation, mediator, yes. The one who goes between. But then that's been, that's had a different meaning attached to that. Yes, it really under... Baggage. Yes, do we view this now under the Roman dictator law? Or do we review this under the designer law? Worship him who made the heavens and the earth. Okay, which, which law? If it's under the, the, the imposed law, then we need our advocate, our lawyer, someone to defend us against the ruling authority who is required by law to punish us. If we understand it under the design law, then we understand we're sick and dying and we need someone to bring us a remedy and a cure to restore us. Well, to make you... To make us new, to be reborn, regenerated, recreated in holiness, to write the law on the heart and mind. It really makes a difference which law you view it under. So then we have, for me, mediation is similar to intercession. Intercession, mediation. Yes? And God intercedes, as I look at scripture, he intercedes in three primary places or ways. One, he intercedes in our hearts and minds with the natural desires of the carnal nature, bringing the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, and woo and draw. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent. The serpent represents sinful carnal, uh, carnalness, and, and the Holy Spirit is working to put enmity in the hearts of man against sin, that we don't want to sin, we have a better desire. So he's interceding in our hearts to give us a desire for good to want to long, long for our, our Eden home, so to speak. That's one place. He also intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness, holding in forces the four winds of strife, the hedge of protection in the book of Job, the, the angel army in, the, in uh, Elisha's day, holding back the evil forces. He sends his agents to hold back Satan's forces. And most importantly, he interceded in Jesus Christ with the natural course of what sin would do to human beings. Once we sin, the natural outflow of that, this is a terminal condition. We're in a trajectory of eternal annihilation and destruction and death. That is the natural course of sin. Jesus Christ interceded and took upon himself, though he knew no sin, he became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So this course that humanity was on, he interceded and offered us a different outcome. We can go down a different path now. This is what he's done. There is no place in Scripture where Christ intercedes with his Father in our behalf. It doesn't happen. Why? I'll give you a Bible text, Romans chapter 8, starting verse 31. If God is, God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up, how will he not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? He is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. That word also, what's it mean? Along with or in addition to. In addition to who? To the Father. See, the Father is interceding. And if you go back a few verses, it says the Holy Spirit intercedes with moans and utterances that we can't understand. And so we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three interceding in a united front in our behalf with the forces of evil and sin in our lives to heal and restore. There is no disparity amongst the Godhead. But when you have the imperial dictator view, then you've got one member of the Godhead who pleads with the other member of the Godhead to protect us. And if you go really down that trail, you end up with Jesus, Mary, and all the saints pleading to him because you've got to really work on him to get him to be on your side. Wednesday's lesson.
second paragraph. It says, um, there is no chapter in our experience too dark for him. And this talks about basic, this is a great paragraph. No, no paragraph in our experience is too dark for him to read. There is no perplexity too difficult for him to unravel. No calamity can befall the least of his children. No anxiety harass the soul. No joy um, cheer. No sincere prayer escape the lips of which our Heavenly Father is unobservant or in which he takes no immediate interest, and so forth and so on. Um, each soul is distinct in the Father's care. Have you ever known God's presence and love in the midst of suffering? We're never abandoned or cast off. And I wanted to talk just briefly about the suffering idea. What, first off, is suffering? What is it? And I looked up a dictionary definition, so I, I've got an advantage on you. And the dictionary gives two, two definitions. One, the experience, to experience pain, illness, or injury. And the other is to experience something unpleasant. This is what the dictionary defines as suffering. And I thought, well, what are the sources of suffering in this world today? I heard some mumbling. What are some sources of suffering? Sources of suffering. Sin. Sin, okay. Sin, which is deviation from God's design. You deviate from the way God built things, you will suffer. Pure and simple. Because that's out of harmony with life and health and laws. And and if you smoke, eventually you're going to suffer. You drink heavily, you're going to suffer. Why? Because you're deviating from the laws of health. If you cheat on your spouse, you're going to suffer. You embezzle from your employer, you're going to suffer. You may not even get caught, but you'll suffer because you won't sleep as well. You'll have more anxiety. You'll have more fear. You will suffer. Um, so one, sin, deviating from the design. Our own choices can cause us to suffer, can't they? So one source is the things we do to ourselves. Evil people can do things to innocent people to cause suffering. Isn't it true? Yes. Satan and his fallen angels. You look in the book of Job, there's some opportunity there where we see that sometimes he can cause suffering. Random events in a sinful world. Wasn't, you weren't intended target by anyone. It's just random events in a sinful world where chaos can happen can cause suffering. And then degeneration of nature. Uh, I would have to put this down to what we call aging. It's nature degenerating over time because we are not in the full unity with God who is sustaining and rebuilding constantly by the outflow of his person and keeping nature from degenerating. We're in a world that is in an in a artificial bubble. But... What about healing therapies, discipline, exercise needed for growth? No pain, no gain, they say. What about the crucifixion of the carnal nature? When we die to self, does this cause suffering? Well, here's a quote. This is a Bible, from, Bible reference from Peter. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Done with it. Done. Would you like to be done with sin? Done with sin? Now, this is the NIV saying body. Other versions will say suffer in the flesh. And the flesh can be more than just your body. It means that carnal nature. As a result, he does not live to the the rest of his earthly life for human evil desires, but rather for the will of God. What is this kind of suffering? Must persons suffer in this way if they want healing from sin? Wow, a lot of blank looks here. Yes, and this is the reason why a lot of people avoid it. This is that walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You know that, that Psalms 23, that, that the Lord initially, when we come to that first conversion experience, he, he, he feeds us in, in the green pastures and the still waters and nurtures us up and gets us strong. But then he's going to lead us in the path of righteousness for his namesake in order to restore our soul. And he's, if we follow him, where do we end up going? Into the valley of the shadow of death. It's not the valley of death. It's the valley in which we die to self, where self is crucified, where we feel like we're going to die. This is Jacob, Knights of Trouble. This is David after Nathan confronts him. This was, this was Peter after he denies the Lord. They go out and whip bitterly. They're dying to self on the inside, suffering in agony as they let go of the selfish nature and trust God. But his rod and staff comforts us. His prayer is a table before us. He anoints our head with the Spirit. We dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We become part of that heavenly sanctuary. Yes, Russell. When you're talking about suffering, I, my mind immediately went to the Hebrews text, and Christ developed the perfect character through suffering. Yes, Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Even though he he had no sin to eradicate, he still suffered through the, that human nature. That tempted him. him tempting him toward uh, the serving of self. So let's see if I can make this plain. If an addict 
is, is, is craving but chooses to say no to the craving because they're in rehab and they want freedom, is there a period of time where they suffer in the flesh? But if they suffer, are they done with the addiction? Yes. Yes, they are. If they, if they continue to say no, if they give in to the suffering and, and give in to the craving, then they're continuing to participate in the addiction. Only by choosing to go away from the addiction and there's a period of transition where they suffer, are they getting freedom? An arrogant person who chooses not to take the seat of preeminence, do they suffer? A greedy person who chooses to give, genuine, to give genuinely, do they suffer? A controlling person who chooses to sender, surrender control, do they suffer? A perfectionist who chooses to allow visitors to their home to ruffle their pillows, <laughs> leave dirty dishes on the counter, will they suffer? <laughs> yes, they will. They're su- Notice what I'm going after here, guys. Yes. Is such suffering harmful to us? Such suffering is a, result of, is a result of sin because we're infected with it, but applying the remedy, which is crucifying the infection, where there's an agony or suffering that comes. This is in contrast to the suffering that comes from participating in sin, which only adds to further damage. Yes, Joel. Okay, so, yes, I believe we're born in sin, we're born selfish. So if we are going to move to where God wants us, we are going to suffer, and we all do. I buy that, I understand that, I experience that in my life. What I like from you is a distinguishing of we all know people who live their life as martyrs. They have a martyr syndrome. And so if they're not all like this all the time about everything, they're not a real Christian. (laughs) I like where you're going. That's ego. And if they're not the martyr, then they're not the center of attention. They're not, they can't be praised for their self-sacrifice. So ego, so for them to stop martyring themselves would actually cause them more suffering than the suffering they pretend to have. Wow. <laughs> okay? Isn't that true, guys? So let me, let me finish with this. We're out of time. Let me finish. What is the danger of suffering? As I understand, the real danger in suffering is misunderstanding and misclassifying it so that suffering that's coming from sin itself we attribute to God punishing or God doing. And suffering that's coming from discipline as we crucify the flesh to overcome, we attribute to sin and stop the discipline process and, and continue in our sin. The real danger in suffering is the misunderstanding of where it's, what it's coming from and what its purpose is. And this is so common. I can't tell you how many people I see in my office that have some type of suffering and, and they've got it misclassified and therefore that only adds to their suffering. Okay, one last comment and we'll close. The chapter in Romans where it goes, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And God's really interested in the perfection of character. And the suffering produces the perfection That's of right. character. And, and when we understand right. Okay, I gotta, I gotta give one more thing. It's Thursday's lesson. Two minutes. Give me two minutes. And that is this idea of the Trinity which is brought up in, the, in Thursday's lesson. There is a real attack going on in Christianity, particularly our church, on the Trinity. And I want to uh, give you the, the important reasons why I believe that this attack is an attack against God's character and and that is because love as we understand it other centeredness outward moving requires an object to sacrifice self for to to uh, for love to move toward eliminating the trinity means at some point in time God was a singularity not a plurality which means God at, 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 at was at some time in the past something other than other-centered love because there was no other to center his love upon. Do you follow me on this? This is the real attack. It means at the core, God would not be loved. This is Satan's attack against God's character. This is how the book Education. Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the Great Controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principle of actions to be selfish. Arguing that God at one time was a singularity, and there was a time before anything else was created. There was a time when there was no other for God to center upon. He wouldn't be other-centered. Uh, why? And, the, and some will hear that and go, okay, then there was just the Father and the Son. And they try to take out the Holy Spirit as a member of the Godhead. It's just God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just nothing more than God the Father's Spirit. Okay? So it's just God and the Son. And the Son is an offspring of the Father. Uh, and he's fully divine, but he's the Son and he came from the Father. Another, another distortion. Why? Because three is the minimum number you can have to actually have other-centered love. Two is not. Why? I've seen it before. 
Two narcissistic people can spend all their time being the center of the other one's attention. The center of the other person's attention. Never having to deny themselves because they're constantly being validated as the center of the other's attention. But when a third is involved, it presents the opportunity to step back and allow another to be the center of your loved one's attention. I've seen it in my patients. When a couple get together, they date, they marry, they get along great, happily for many, many years. No problems until the first child comes along. And then the mother, wife, spends her time with the child and she's less available to keep the husband as the center of all her attention. And he then becomes, if he's selfish, jealous, angry, hurt, frustrated, and even accuses the wife of not loving him because she doesn't spend all the time with him she used to. Have you not seen it? Yes, this three, the Trinity is a small number you can have to have genuine other-centered love where each is willing to sacrifice for the other, to put the other first. You love them more than self. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask you, that we, we thank you so much for, for bringing the truth and providing remedy for our condition. We ask now the Spirit will come and, and take what Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, enlighten our minds, help our minds put the pieces together, help us see this universe the way you have intended it to be and see the infection that is damaging and make us effective agents in your cause to help free other minds. We pray in your holy name. Amen.